There's an immense freedom in announcing one's retirement, the freedom to say what one really thinks. Now, current or former students of mine who are listening may be surprised to hear me say that, since I, yes, they are, since I'm generally not known for my reticence. But though I might have seemed outspoken to you in the past, in the classroom I actually make an effort at restraint. You have to get jobs someday, after all. But today I'll say things I might not have said in class. You needn't agree with me, but it would be helpful to know that you don't have any projectiles or firearms on your person. Passed from prophetic witness in traumatic times. There was a lively debate among the Bexley Seabury faculty about using the word trauma in the convocation title. Some felt the word should be used only to describe rape or PTSD or childhood abuse. Others felt the daily assaults upon the dignity of women, LGBTQ folk, non-white Americans, and immigrants, both legal and undocumented, that we've experienced since November 2016, absolutely rise to the level of trauma, an attack upon our core human values. As you can see, we compromised on traumatic, which I suppose is a form of trauma-ish. <laughs> I would describe my own experience over the past 18 months as one of profound sadness and disbelief, as I've come to realize just how quickly the slow but steady progress I've witnessed over 60 years of life on this planet can be undone, both in law and in social discourse. The popular graffito that was spray painted across our country in November of 2016, Black Lives Don't Matter and Neither Do Your Votes, seemed like something from a documentary about the civil rights era, as though it should have been accompanied by fire hoses and attack dogs. To realize that white supremacy has never died, only waited its next opportunity, has had a chilling effect on my psyche. And learning that my sadness at this state of affairs apparently makes me a snowflake, just as insult to injury. But our purpose today is not merely to wail and gnash our teeth about our traumatic times, but to consider what our pastoral prophetic response might be to them. I confess these words did not prove evocative for me as a speaker at this event. A pastoral response sounded like more snowflake material, and the call to be prophetic risked self-importance. I felt confident that my colleague, Pamela Cooper-White, would address both these adjectives with brilliance and inspiration, and she has done that. It seemed more pertinent to me to present a resource from the Christian faith that can indeed respond to the times we live in, a resource easily accessed, but not so easily used. I refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cure for every human ill, to which we have paid little but lip service for lo, these 2,000 years. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in her joy she goes and sells all that she has and buys that field. Human beings love structure. When uncertain of meaning or direction, we feel uneasy. So we create structures for ourselves that supply both. Over time we lose sight of the origins of these structures, so we no longer say, we created this, but God created this. In light of this very general observation, the announcement of the reign of God drawn near can best be characterized by its call to conversion, or metanoia. This conversion is nothing less than the call to abandon all structure, to see what's left over when we do. The Gospel asks, when the structures of religion are shattered, who is God? When the structures of society are shattered, where is community? When the structured defenses of the individual are shattered, who am I? 
So it's hardly surprising that the gospel has perennially been considered too demanding, entirely hyperbolic, requiring restatement in terms which allow us to maintain our existing structures. Case in point. The gospel point for Ash Wednesday is Matthew 6, 1 through 6, 16 through 21. It includes these words. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces to, so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Immediately after reading these words of Jesus, we disfigure our faces. <laughs> when I was a newly confirmed Episcopalian at the age of 16, my Anglo-Catholic rector would put a box of Kleenex at the door of the church on Ash Wednesday and remind us before the dismissal that the ashes were solely an in-house ritual, so please wipe them off as you leave and don't wear them to the grocery store. This wise man seems to have been a focus group of one, given... <laughs> given the amount of ashes I see at the grocery store every year. Whenever I point out this blatant contradiction to students or clergy colleagues, they laugh and say, so true. Really? <laughs> you didn't notice that until I pointed it out? Ha ha, they say, ironic. Then they go on doing it. This is not a call for reform of the liturgy, simply a common sense observation that when we show such contempt for the teachings of Jesus, they are of absolutely no benefit to us. They don't work anymore. When we do try to follow them, however tentatively, a way of being in the world opens out before us that the church can't offer us and doesn't particularly want us to think about. It's time to admit that the church has its own agenda, which is not that of Jesus, an agenda that's not necessarily pernicious, but neither is it salvific. Conversion cannot be assimilated into structure. It levels structure. And when structure returns, levels it again. There's a very real sense in which the church and the Christian religion are at a point of polar opposition from the gospel which gave rise to them, and not for the first time. The gospel contains the seeds of the church's continual deconstruction until the end comes and God is everything to everyone. The life of faith to which the gospel calls people is one of relentless momentum, because not to change is to die. Be converted and live, Jesus says and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This call to continual conversion means there can be no indelible theological stances, only provisional ones. Yet the structure of theological education continually ignores this truth. It treats the painful compromises born of partisan politics and the clashes of armies on the battlefield as received truth, revelation, saying God made this rather than we made this. Whenever I have occasion to teach the formation of Christian theology, I make use of a chart from the back of that old chestnut, Ye Are the Body, by Holy Cross Father Bernal Spencer. It has one column that says, What the Heretics Believe, and another that says, What the Church Teaches. Wrong answer, right answer. I ask my students to consider the social realities behind this chart. Some communities took the source materials of the Christian faith and read them differently came up with interpretations that seemed correct to them or that enlivened their faith. And they paid for their differing point of view with ecclesiastical exclusion or the loss of their property or even with their lives. I'm trying to discourage a habit of mind that looks for correct theology and incorrect theology 
and instead sees the variety of ways our sources can be interpreted and made a way of life. It's usually a losing proposition. I recall one student asking me to slow down until she could master all the heresies on the chart. She wanted to be sure you see that her congregation would not be found guilty of any of them. Those of you who have me in class will recognize a good example of what I said versus what they heard. I chaired the search committee that brought Ellen Wondery to our faculty as professor of theology. At a festive restaurant dinner with another candidate, channeling Debbie Downer, I brought up the tortured history of the forging of the Nicene faith and asked what the candidate thought about the people who had been exiled, tortured, hanged, beheaded, or burned for believing a different version of the Christian faith. The candidate looked perplexed and replied, but they were wrong. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> By the way, I read this comment about ye are the body on Amazon. Some critics have said Spencer seems to gloss over some subtle issues in church conflict, but his purpose is to give a flowing overview of church history. Oh, well, in that case, as C. Davies, as C. Davies Reed would say, carry on. <laughs> probably sounds like I'm soft on heretics. In fact, the opposite is true. Eager enough to pounce on people from a millennium or two ago who, quote, got it wrong, graduates of seminaries seem unable to recognize heresy in their own day or coming from their own lips. Even as I try to inject compassion for the ways of being Christian, the church kicked to the side of the road, I hear actual heresy from many a preacher, many an e-blast from anywhere. Sentiment and opinion reign. If it makes me smile or cry, it must be true. We've largely reduced the preaching of the gospel to religious entertainment. That's why we have so few resources to face the current climate, when our still adolescent democracy has developed a serious crush on fascism. Sentiment and opinion will not get us out of the bind we have created. Only wide-eyed, eyes-wide-open theology can do that, a theology not in conversation with itself, but with the dying world. At this moment in history, the correct Christian theology is the one that opens an aperture for the inbreaking of the reign of God. Everything else is speculation. Because we've convinced ourselves that heresy is about whether Jesus had a human mind and a divine soul, or vice versa, we overlook the greater heresies of the gun lobby and white supremacy. Heresies that teach, contrary to the gospel, that some lives are more valuable than others. We have completely failed to understand that the NRA is not a political organization, but a religion, as is white supremacy. At the same time, we treat the gospel as religion, when in, in fact it is the end of religion, the demolition of structure. The gospels portray Jesus who is fully aware that the vice-like grip of the Roman Empire on the province of Judea is a spiritual occupation that requires exorcism, rather than a military occupation that requires rebellion. When Charlton Heston famously popularized the phrase, from my cold, dead hands, by concluding his speech as president of the NRA with it every year, he elicited a roar of enthusiasm that surpassed anything even the most popular political candidate might generate. Can you recall anything the church has said or done eliciting such zeal? We would do well to learn from the Shakers who said, that which we have not reasoned our way into, we cannot reason our way out of. You may know that some of the survivors of the Parkland Massacre are taking part in a production of the musical Spring Awakening. They had begun rehearsals before the Valentine's Day shooting and resolved to continue after it. The New York Times had a long article last week 
about members of the original Broadway cast visiting Florida to offer the young actors their support. That's commendable, but they need a lot more support than that. There's a police cruiser parked outside of every rehearsal because the survivors turned activists have received multiple death threats from gun supporters who have made every scrap of information about these children available to anyone who would like to harm them. These kids have dared to say that their lives are more important than the right to own a gun, and so they find themselves threatened by violence. It's an impulse the church knows well. Let the heretic die. After the Charlottesville riots last year, Andrew Anglin, editor of the neo-Nazi website The Daily Stormer, published a blog post titled Heather Heyer, woman killed in road rage incident was a fat, childless, 32-year-old slut. Like the uncanny success of the 9-11 hijackers in bringing down both of the World Trade Center towers in their entirety, James Fields Jr. chose his victim randomly, but with perfect accuracy from the point of view of white supremacists, since it was quickly learned that this hire had been an activist for racial equality. Despite feigned outrage by the media, Anglin wrote, most people are glad she's dead, as she's the definition of uselessness. A 32-year-old woman without children is a burden on society and has no value. He went on to call Hire a fat slob and a gross creature. The Christian religion and its doctrines have no good reply to this man. The gospel does. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Pray for those who persecute you. How many intercession lists included the names of the 9-11 hijackers? Who prayed for Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris after Columbine? For Dylan Roof after Charleston? For Omama Teen after Orlando? Perhaps some of you did pray for some or all of these personally. If you did, good for you. But I'm talking about the public practice of the gospel. I have no special insight into the motivations of the 9-11 terrorists, but one look at these other troubled young men shows them to be in obvious need of our prayers. Yet again and again we see makeshift monuments at the site of their outrages with candles that correspond exactly to the number of those killed. The perpetrators pointedly and spitefully excluded. Praying for those who have wronged us or others is not some kind of political correctness or knee-jerk liberalism. It's an essential part of the counterintuitive formation the gospel offers us. By his life and teachings, Jesus tried to take away our dichotomous way of thinking. Our practice reveals that we remain unconverted. The gospel has no religious content. It's about the organization of human life under God. It sees human institutions of religion and government as sinfully flawed and in need of demolition. Imagine how powerful these structures must be if they receive the body bloated as the gospel and bounce back, refashioning it in their image, so that now every session of Congress opens with a prayer, proof that Jesus and the gospel have been thoroughly domesticated. Of course, the religionists count that prayer a victory. Now imagine praying for your enemies, blessing those who persecute you, and giving your cloak to someone who demands your coat, all being described as treasure. Yes, that's what the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel does. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in her joy she goes and sells all that she has and buys that field. No, 
we can't just open the Gospels and start using the treasure we find there. We have to go and sell all that we have first. All our doctrinal certainty is about the two natures of Christ. The proper choir habit for Evensong. The redactional history of the story of Cain and Abel. The Anselmian theory of atonement as satisfaction. None of that will save you, Jesus says. Only a new way of living, a converted way of living. But you have to choose it. Realizing that we have the same agency to follow Jesus or reject him as his first listeners had is startling. The simplicity of the gospel is appealing because we can grasp it upon first hearing, and it is unappealing because once we grasp it, we also grasp its implications for our lives. Most theology we hear from the pulpit can be picked up or put down at will. It does not compel a decision from us. The gospel does. But do we want it? I heard thy voice in paradise, and I was afraid. This version of Adam's address to God in Eden sounds a little foreign. It's because it's taken from the Douay Rance translation of the scriptures, the Roman Catholic response to the King James Bible. For me, it sums up the whole history of the relationship between God and the human race and explains why the Christian religion became a substitute for the practice of the gospel. I heard thy voice in paradise. God comes to visit the man and woman each day at the time of the evening breeze, not to say something religious to them or demand their worship, but to find out what they've been doing that day. Their easy camaraderie is spoiled by the free choice of the man and woman to do the one thing God asks them not to do, a request God made for their well-being, not to test them. God's heart is broken at the news they have eaten the fruit of the tree of knowledge, but the humans decide that surely God is angry at them. I heard thy voice in paradise, and I was afraid. Whenever you pray, Jesus says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What he proposes is nothing less than paradise restored, an intimate face-to-face -face conversation with God. But we still don't buy it. We don't buy that God has never been angry with us in spite of what Anselm said, and wants nothing more than our flourishing. If Jesus' teaching seemed demanding, it's because the world is so out of whack after millennia of bad human choices that it needs a serious corrective to realign it. That's all the gospel is, a realignment. But the prospect of that work proved so alarming to us that we postponed it indefinitely by embalming it in religion instead of taking Jesus at his word and at least giving it a try. Earlier I said that sentiment and opinion will not help us in these traumatic times, only eyes wide open theology. So what might that theology look like? Here are a few key propositions. One, the cross is only meaningful if we choose it. If someone else puts us there, it just reflects badly on them. The continued use of the phrase, it's my cross to bear, inverts the plain meaning of Jesus' injunction to take up our crosses and the worldview they establish. Jesus asks us to look the haters in the eye and say, do your worst. I will stand with the God of love and justice. Two, Jesus didn't die for our sins. He died for the sake of the reign of God because he refused to compromise its principles or soften its demands. His execution is a testament to human freedom. God doesn't like what we have made of the world, but the only way to help us make a new one is to allow us to choose God's reign freely. That choice will be painful for some, liberating for many. Three, Jesus died an individual and rose a community. This is not my insight, but the early churches. 
At the great vigil of Easter, the bishop will lead the newly baptized from the baptistry into the church and say to the gathered faithful, Behold, Christ risen in his newly baptized. This statement makes the roadmap clear. Don't come to church and pray for Jesus to do this or that. Continue his work. Only then is he truly risen. Or, it's time to abandon the theology of blood sacrifice as atonement for sin. It teaches us that violence is good if it benefits us. It's used to justify the deaths of young men and women in war and underlies our society's ongoing misogyny, encouraging women to give up their bodies to atone for their innate sinfulness. Bear in mind that we're only one prayer book removed from the liturgy for the churching of women after childbirth. Five. Let the restoration of paradise be our dominant metaphor for salvation, as it was for much of the first millennium of Christianity. Being in a right relationship with God now, instead of pie in the sky by and by, is a good the average believer can embrace with enthusiasm. Such a view of salvation also includes ecological and gender justice, since in Eden before the fall, the garden and the humans existed in perfect harmony, and the man recognized the woman as his equal in every way. It's my conviction that these theological proposals, if adopted, would shed centuries of lethargy and give us resources to function in a world in every way as disordered and violent as the one in which the gospel first visited us in Jesus Christ. The gospel asks, when the structures of religion are shattered, who is God? Whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When the structures of society are shattered, where is community? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. When the structured defenses of the individual are shattered, who am I? You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And these things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. In this awful time for our country, we do have some options. We can choose the cross, refuse to compromise the demands of the reign of God, say bring it on to the haters and the contemptuous who are so far from the cross they can't even see it on the horizon. And when we choose it, Jesus will be right there next to us, saying, today you will be with me 